With Geno Smith back in action and one of the best supporting casts in football, the Seahawks are expected to have a high-octane offense once again in 2023. We're going to be dishing out some fan-driven, bold predictions for the Seahawks offense on our Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined for our Monday episode by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang, and a special thanks to all the 12s out there, whether you're listening in Montana or you're across the country listening in Connecticut. We greatly appreciate you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We're nearly two weeks away from the start of training camp, and we're going to be in the top 20 in our 90-man countdown, the 20 most important players for the Seahawks heading into the 2023 season. And we'll be tackling your questions in our Monday mailbag, some really fun ones submitted for today's show. Let's get to this jam-packed episode. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, which helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash NFL. That's linkedin.com slash NFL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now for your lead story here on our Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. Seattle finished in the top 10 in scoring offense last season, even without Russell Wilson, a comeback player of the year campaign by Geno Smith, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett over a thousand yards receiving Ken Walker, the third over a thousand yards rushing the two rookie tackles, Abe Lucas and Charles cross played outstanding as rookies. The group came together much better than expected and expectations now for this season, Rob are pretty high which led us to the question, what are some bold predictions that we could make for this offensive unit heading into the 2023 season? And rather than you and I sitting here and dishing out our own predictions, we'll have some opportunities to do that once we get into training camp. We decided to ask our beloved fans, our beloved listeners to dish out some of their own bold predictions and then analyze those. And we got some really tasty predictions here that we're going to be diving into. Let's get to it. Our first one here, Rob. This one is coming from David Furtado, 8597 on YouTube. The Seahawks offensive line protects Geno Smith well enough that he cooks with the receiver and tight end groups. And we have three Seahawks to go for a thousand yards plus in receiving, there's no question, Rob, that that would be a historical feat if they managed to get not two, but three receivers with over a thousand yards this year. Yeah, and as you said, Corbin, uh, the Seahawks have accomplished the latter. They've had two receivers go for a thousand yards. They did that with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett just a year ago. But the bold prediction that has been authored here is to have three different pass catchers get over a thousand yards and presumably that would be the wide receiver Jackson Smith and Jake but of course it could wind up being a, a tight end or running back those different scenarios have happened a total of five times in NFL history and not since 2008 when it was actually three wide receivers for the Arizona Cardinals Larry Fitzgerald, Anquan Bolden and Steve Breston 
that actually all three got over a thousand yards. It's only been three times that it's been receivers has been the case. And the, the time before that, 2008 was 2004, Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, Brandon Stokely for the Colts. Then back to 1995, where it was kind of a running back receiver mix. I only mention this because of the last name of that running back receiver mix. That would be Eric Metcalf, who is related to DK Metcalf. Uh, Terrence Mathis was a wide receiver. Burt Emanuel was a wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons. You go all the way back to the posse with the Washington. Used to be at one time known as a different name, but of course known as the Washington Commanders now. Uh, you know, and, and they are, uh, that was Art Monk, um, Ricky Sanders, and Gary Clark. And the very first time, I mentioned tight end, Kellen Winslow, the great Kellen Winslow with Don Curiel and Dan Fouts and the same to them. San Diego Chargers back in the day uh, with John Jefferson and Charlie Joyner. Um, those are the only five times in history. As I mentioned before, 2008 was the last time this happened. So, Corbett, it truly would be historic. It would absolutely turn the NFL on its ear if the Seahawks were able to get three wide or three pass catchers over a thousand yards. It has happened before, but not in a long time. Obviously, if that was the it would to be the case this upcoming season, the Seahawks would have one of the most prolific offenses in NFL history. I think this one's really fun too from Seahawks hog tweets. They will average 250 passing yards and 150 rushing yards per game. Rob, you want to talk about something that has rarely happened. This has happened three times in NFL history. And ironically, one of them happened last year, the Philadelphia Eagles who went to the Super Bowl. They had an explosive passing and running offense in part because Jalen Hurts was a really dynamic dual threat quarterback, but they had a good run game, excellent offensive line. You have to go back to 2013, the Philadelphia Eagles again. They were the second team that did it. And then 1998, the San Francisco 49ers, all three of those teams won at least 10 games, but none of them won the Super Bowl, interestingly. So really potent offenses made deep playoff runs in one of those instances, but the other two teams ended up falling short when they got to the postseason. Nonetheless, it would be a historic feat if the Seahawks were able to average 250 passing yards, 150 rushing yards per game. That's only happened three times in the entire history of the NFL. Next one here, this might be the spiciest take that we have, Rob. Max Busby, 34-56 on YouTube. Colby Parkinson leads all tight ends in the NFL in touchdown receptions with 12. Just to put this in context, Rob, that has happened twice in the last five years that a tight end has gotten to 12 touchdowns in regular season. One of them was from a player you would have expected. The other, not so much. And maybe that does give some credence to the idea that Parkinson could have 12 touchdowns out of nowhere in 2023. Yeah, I think that some of our listeners um, might have been watching or, or listening here and just thought about who might those tight ends be. Uh, Travis Kelsey, the Kansas City Chiefs, of course, just won a championship and put, put up one of the most dominant seasons you've ever seen from a tight end. And Eric Ebron would be the trivia answer to the question that you might be thinking about that Corbin just alluded to a moment ago. Corbin, you talked about it. Uh, you know, we are going to have our opportunities to make our own bold predictions. When we first start talking about this idea, one of the players that I was going to mention is Kobe Parkinson. I do think that he has a chance to kind of vault ahead of Noah Fant and Will Disley to be Seattle's number one tight end. But to get to 12 touchdowns would be obviously a huge, huge, huge jump. To me, this one's a little bit too bold, but I am kind of thinking along the same lines of Kobe Parkinson having his breakout season in 2023. Yeah, he absolutely could. I think 12, though, that would be an insane number. Again, it's only happened twice in the last five years. And so 
you know, maybe he can get to six, seven touchdowns. That would be reasonable. But 12, that is certainly a bold take. Next one here coming from GoChaw82 tweeting, Geno Smith will run for 20 first downs and five touchdowns in 2023. I don't necessarily think that rushing for 20 first downs is quite as bold. That would still be a lot. And I don't know that Geno is going to run enough to be able to do that. But five touchdowns? Uh, unless he's getting a bunch of quarterback sneaks and they're having Ken Walker the third push him into the end zone, it's hard for me to envision him getting five scores in the rushing variety. But that would also mean that they're getting into the red zone a lot, which would be good news for the Seahawks. So hopefully he can get to that number and this bold prediction comes true because that usually means there's some pretty good results getting downfield to get your quarterback into that position last one that we've got here coming from big dumpy 29 tweets o-line will be top 10 in the nfl and abraham lucas is an all pro i don't know which one of those is more bold the idea that this line could be a top 10 unit by the end of the season or abraham lucas in year two takes a massive leap and becomes an all pro caliber player I actually think that I would be leaning towards the first one, and that's not a slight on Abraham Lucas because I could see him being a contender to be a pro bowler potentially this year and maybe a second-team all-pro, but you've got those two ascending young tackles. You think your interior offensive line is going to be better with some of the upgrades you made this offseason. If everything works out, then this could be a top-10 line. I would lean more towards that happening than Lucas, but if the entire line plays better and the Seahawks win a bunch of games – you're going to have a better chance by default to get all pro selection. So maybe that means that Abraham Lucas is one of those big winners coming up next. We're going to be tackling your questions on our Monday mailbag. we got some really fun ones today that we're going to be answering. We'll get to those here in a moment on our Monday edition of locked on Seahawks. This episode is brought your way by LinkedIn. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right people for your team faster and for free. When I was a site manager, LinkedIn Jobs my go-to post-writing positions to land top candidates, and they made the process easy and seamless. All you have to do is create your job post and then add your job in the purple hashtag hiring for to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word you're hiring. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash locked on NFL. That's linkedin.com slash locked on NFL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Every day is coming up tomorrow. We're going to continue our all-underrated Seahawks squad with tight ends and edge rushers. It should be a blast, and you won't want to miss it. Let's get to your questions. It's time for our Monday mailbag segment, Rob. And the first one that we've got here... We have one question that is for me and another one that we can both answer here. This coming from R Timoni 79 tweeting, what got you into metal? So I'll answer that question in a moment, but let's talk first football here first. How come teams in the 90s didn't use 3-4 defenses or slot receivers as much? And I think that's a really interesting question because it's true. 3-4 yeah. defenses 
were not in vogue back then in the 90s. Teams were running a lot of 4-3 defenses and slot receivers. They were not utilized near as much as they are in today's game. No, they certainly were not. Uh, like a huge part of it was in the 80s, San Francisco 49ers and Bill Walsh and his offense, uh, which was just such a timing-based offense. It was unstoppable. Um, and, and so defenses had to start to learn to adjust. And so that's where you're going to start to see teams really start to uh, kind of get into this quote-unquote era of, of modern football. You know, I when I first started getting into the scouting business, court, I remember buying a book that was basically on coaching scouting football, and it kind of talked about the dangers of the passing game. And it mentioned that if you throw the ball, there's three possible outcomes. Obviously, you could get the, get the reception. It also could be an incompletion. It also could be an interception. Obviously, we all know that. But it made it sound like it was such a negative to throw the ball. And that was the mindset back in the day. It was all about running the ball. It was all about being very close and compact at the line of scrimmage. And it's only as time has gone on that we started to kind of spread the field wider and deeper. And then there was that time we kind of mentioned that Don Coriel offense where it was all about the deep shots. Uh, you know, now it's all about extending the field again horizontally just because the pass rush gets to you so quickly and the quarterbacks are getting the ball out of their hands so quickly. So, yeah, I think that it, it's a it's a fun question because it kind of talks about the timeline of football. And uh, I'm excited to see what's going to happen moving forward. I think that we're going to continue to see the, the NFL evolve. Yeah, I think that when you look back at the 90s, a lot of it was just personnel and just the way that the game was played. And teams were running a lot more of the two back, two tight end offenses, three yards, and a ball of dust. That was the way that the game was played in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And things started to change at the turn of the century, and, and teams were able to swing, uh, sling the football all over the place. And we've seen that carry over now. And more times than not, teams are going to have three receivers on the field now. Yes. Back in the early 90s, mid-90s, that was not the case. Two receivers in the field, let's get two backs, let's run it down their throats, let's be conservative with the football, let's try to eat up possession, uh, clock it was just a different game than what we see in the nfl today there's no question about it. as far as the first part of that question what got me into metal you can blame my high school football coaches because before that point i was listening to just alternative rock and then i got to hear slipknot for the first time and disturbed and a few other bands and next thing i know that was all that i was listening to and here we are now and that's all i listen to these days. Next question coming from Jeremy on YouTube. Which player coming back 100% healthy is most important to Seattle's defense, Jordan Brooks or Jamal Adams? I'm going to be leaning towards Jamal Adams in this one. We've talked about it before on the podcast. I just look at his unique skill set when he is healthy, his ability to get into the box and wreak havoc as a rusher. He is a plus run defender. He's been one of the top graded run defenders at safety pretty much every year he has been in the NFL since being a top 10 pick, and we know how much the Seahawks struggled in that regard last year, you have to utilize him properly because of his skill set. You have to find ways to maximize that, but I feel like Clint Hurt was figuring that out last season. Unfortunately, got hurt in the season opener and missed the rest of the season. Jordan Brooks is an important player. I don't want to discount that, but you did bring back Bobby Wagner. You added Devin Bush in free agency. So you've got some insurance there. And I know that they added Julian Love. And maybe Julian Love can handle those strong safety duties as well. But Julian Love is not the same style player. I feel like Jamal Adams just gives this defense a lot more schematic flexibility. No, I think that's a really uh, great way of articulating your point. Because uh, I actually kind of disagree with you. I was going to argue for Jordan Brooks. 
But I think that you make a really compelling argument there about why Jamal Adams is more important to Seattle's defense moving forward. And I have to agree with you in, in terms of Jamal Adams being such a unique player. But I, I do definitely want to hype or mention the fact that Julian Love, I just think it's a quality safety that can play just about any role that you want him to play. I think that he can be that free safety if you had any kind of problems with Quandre Diggs. I think, he, I think that Julian Love can play that role. I know that he can play the traditional strong safety role and the traditional nickel cornerback role. So to me, the backup behind, the backup idea at least, behind Jamal Adams, I personally feel a little bit safer about than an aging, still great, but an aging Bobby Wagner and an inconsistent Devin Bush at this point. And I, I just want to see more from guys like Avai Jones or John Radigan before I'm really going to consider them in the mix for, for considerable playing time at linebacker. So that's the reason why I would argue that Jordan Brooks is actually more important. I personally think that Jamal Adams is the better player. I think he's the more impactful player. The big plays, you know, suggest that. I also think, though, that, that Seattle's depth chart behind Jamal Adams might be better than the depth chart behind Jordan Brooks. I think that I that Jordan Brooks has proven himself to be more reliable than Julian Love. And I think that Seattle leans on Jordan Brooks a little bit more than they would with Julian Love. But I think it's an excellent question. And, uh, again, I'm, it's, it's a question that I'm not so sure that I feel strongly with my own answer. I think that your answer is a good one as well. I think that this is truly one where you could make arguments that are sound for both because they're both really important players for the Seahawks. Darren T on YouTube, who do you think is most important to sign to an extension? Damian Lewis, Noah Fant, or Jordan Brooks? So maybe piggybacking off your answer last question, Brooks, that situation, Devin Bush and Bobby Wagner are also free agents. So from a short-term perspective, you would like to get Brooks re-signed because you don't know who else is going to be there at the position. But I'm going to say a different player here. I'm going to say Damian Lewis. I think that this offensive line, you're going to have Cross and Lucas under their rookie contracts for two more years after this season. You're going to have a window to have one of the best young offensive lines in the NFL, but you need a veteran presence. And I think Lewis was Seattle's most consistently solid offensive lineman a year ago. He was able to rebound from a sophomore season where injuries really held him back, but he was so good as a rookie too. We're still talking about a guy that's in his mid-20s. He's in the prime of his career. I don't think that you'd have to break the bank necessarily to be able to sign him to a long-term deal. You're going to have to pay him some good money. He's a solid young guard. But I don't think you're going to have to pay him top five guard money either. I just think that his veteran presence, I mean, he's the elder statesman of this offensive line now with the departure of Gabe Jackson. So you need to have a rock solid veteran that can lead your offensive line that has been through the rigors, which Damian Lewis now has been. So I think Noah Fant's a good player. I like some of Seattle's other tight ends, though. To me, Damian Lewis is the easy answer on this one. Yeah, again, I'm still going to lean towards Jordan Brooks just because I'm always worried about finding those true three-down linebackers. And I think that Jordan Brooks, when healthy, is that. He may not be an all-pro, pro bowler. He may not be kind of the leader of the group, although he was you know, asked to be, to be the guy wearing the green dot a year ago. And now that Bobby Wagner's back, he's kind of resuming that spot. I, I just I am hesitant to give any, even a good one, uh, an interior offensive lineman, a big contract. 
Um, and I think the Seattle is going to be as well. I think that Daniel is a terrific football player. I think that Seattle should re-sign him. But just in the salary cap world that we live in, I, I just don't think that an interior offensive lineman is quite as much of a priority as, again, a three-down linebacker. I, I think you can make excellent points about how important Damian Lewis is, his age, his consistency, his, uh, you know, the elder states, and all those points I think are excellent ones and why Seattle should make it a priority to, to re-sign him. But if you had to choose one or the other, assuming Jordan Brooks is healthy, then my preference would be the linebacker rather than the interior offensive lineman. Going to some media here with this next question. Matt tweets, best football movie TV show and why? This might actually lead to the greatest debate we've ever had on this show, Rob. <laughs> well, I, I don't know because I've got a lot of them. Uh, it's it's hard for me to say. Uh, my, all, my all-time favorite one, my, my kind of guilty pleasure one, I will watch every single time I, I happen to be looking through the channels, is Rudy. Um, you know, Rudy Rudiger, that story to me is just inspirational, but it's more than just football. I really love movies like The Program um, and kind of taking a, a closer look at what uh, football is like at the college level, the recruiting and, and some of the hijinks that go on behind the scenes. You know, that's some pretty legitimate kind of stuff. Um, and um, uh, yeah, those, those are the ones that kind of jump. Uh, Any Given Sunday would be the other one. Those are the three that really jump out to me uh, for very different reasons. Um, but those are the ones that jump out to me for um you know, just from different football perspectives. Those are all good picks, but I'm going to tell you why they are not the best football movies that are out there. Uh, it, from a serious perspective, remember the Titans is still, that's sure. the movie for me that whenever it's on TV, I have to stop whatever I'm doing and I find myself watching it just because Denzel Washington was incredible. The, the cast that they had for the players. And I know that they took some liberties with the true story, but that's what great movies do. You know, they're going to take some of the truth and then they're going to spice it up. But remember, the Titans is just inspirational and the history behind it. Now, as far as humor goes, the other movie that I absolutely love is The Replacements. And especially the scene where the kicker is smoking on the field and you hear John Madden, uh, rest in peace, John Madden. But uh, you hear him just... Is he smoking on the field? I just think that replacements is hilarious. And Gene Hackman's great. Keanu Reeves is great. Um, the middle linebacker, I got the ball. I got the ball. And there's just yeah. so many epic scenes in that movie. So two different sides of the spectrum, the more serious, inspirational, and the flat-out goofy. Those are my two personal favorites. Last question here in our mailbag, and this one is coming from Carrie. Out of all of Seattle's current assistants, who do you think is the best in-house successor for Pete Carroll? This is a hell of a question, Rob. And I actually think I might have a hard time answering this one. Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult one. Um, you know, I, I've always kind of thought that just from a personality standpoint, I, I really thought that, that Clint Hurt um, has a lot of um, the leadership qualities that I personally think are important when it comes to just being – just molding young men, bringing them together. I've told this story before. Um, years ago, I, I was fortunate enough to be uh, at Seahawks training camp on the very first day of camp when a lot of the, the incoming rookies' families are there. And I watched Clint Hurt put his arms around this mother of a player and just say, I'm going to take care of your son. And I just I, I watched the connection that he made with the player, of course, coaching on the field. But to see the connection that he was making with the players' families and their spouses or their children or whatever – to me, it, I don't, you're never going to be able to replace Pete Carroll. I, I think that Pete Carroll is a Hall of Fame coach. I think that Clint Hurt is a very good coordinator 
that is kind of, you know, spreading his wings, so to speak, as far as being a leader. I know that he is very highly regarded from a lot of people around the league. I don't know that he's ever going to become a head coach, but I do think that he has that type of potential. I'm going to surprise everybody. I'm going to go off the grid a little bit here. I thought about Clint Hurt. I thought about Shane Waldron, but being at practice, I think that Carl Scott is a head coach yeah. in waiting. I love the way that he is able to build camaraderie with his players. You saw what he did with Tariq Woolen last year, what he did with Mike Jackson taking his game to another level. Players love him. And you want to talk about a football nerd. That guy is a walking encyclopedia after coaching for Nick Saban at Alabama. He absorbed everything there like a sponge. He knows defenses inside and out. He knows how to attack offenses. I just think him being a younger coach, too, he's still got a, a long way to develop in terms of, you know, his experiences. And he's only been in the league for a couple of years. But Carl Scott is a coach I am very excited about. I think he's going to be a defensive coordinator down the line. And I would not be surprised if he is a successful NFL head coach at some point. Coming up next, we're going to get to our 90-man countdown. We are into the top 20, numbers 20 through 17. That'll be coming up next here on our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks, which is brought your way by Bird Dogs. Putting it simply, Bird Dogs make you look and feel good. You won't want to take them off. Bird Dogs stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. Bird Dog shorts do the exact same thing as Lululemon, but fit way better. Unlike regular shorts, Bird Dogs aren't made of a stiff, restricting cotton, keeping you comfortable year-round. Take my word for it, whether I'm heading out to a tough road game to cover the Hawks, or chilling at my house preparing for a podcast. I'm always sporting bird dog shorts and joggers because they are extremely comfortable. Don't restrict movement while keeping the slim look and the sweat wicking fabric keeps me cool and dry all day long, no matter the elements. I can't recommend bird dogs enough. You'll want to wear them all day, every day. Go to birddogs.com slash locked on NFL for a free Yeti style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash locked on NFL for a free Yeti style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s that are tuning in and making Locked on Seahawks your first lesson five days a week. For every dayers out there, we're going to continue our 90-man countdown, and we'll dish out some bold defensive predictions on our Tuesday episode. You won't want to miss it. We are now into the top 20 players, the top 20 most important players for the Seahawks on our countdown. And how fitting is it that a player that we already talked a little bit about earlier in the show, now we really get to dive into what he brings to the Seahawks. Coming in at number 20, the insurance policy for Jamal Adams, but yet at the same time, even when Adams is out there, they plan to play him a lot of snaps with Quandre Diggs and Adams. That's Julian Love, one of the marquee free agent additions the Seahawks made this offseason. Yeah, I, I think that this is a really appropriate player to be talking about right now, Corbin. As you talked about, we we, um, we were kind of discussing just how important that Julian Love might be with, with Jamal Adams, uh, you know, again, on the mend. Um, and, and I just see a player here who has such great versatility um, and uh, is a proven playmaker. Uh, you know, now, I, one of the things that I thought was fascinating is when, when Seattle made the sign for Julian Love, and of course, right after that, they released Ryan Neal. And, and there were such like, you know, 
there was such consternation, I think, from a lot of Seahawks fans about why did they do this? If the Gi- if, if if Julian Love is a good football player, why didn't the Giants resign him? Why didn't other clubs resign him? I'd ask people to kind of go back for a while and, and think about what was happening at that point. The, the New York Giants were basically in the middle of negotiations with their quarterback, Daniel Jones, their running back, Saquon Barkley. They were so far over the cap, and there were a lot of uh, you know a lot of moving parts in the early portion of free agency. Julian Love was going to be one of the highest targeted players by a lot of different clubs, it appeared. And then the, the market kind of fell away. Um, and again, the Giants were focused elsewhere. And Seattle kind of came in and just stole Julian Love, in my opinion. I, I do think that the Giants feel that because they had a very aggressive new defensive coordinator in Wink Martindale that allowed Julian Love to play a little closer to the line of scrimmage, I think that they feel that Julian Love's numbers were a little bit bigger than maybe they should have been. And I disagree. I think that Julian Love is a good football player. I think that he is a perfect fit in Seattle's system. And I think that Seattle got a very good player for relatively cheap. And so, again, I think that this is a huge addition for the Seahawks. I think it makes their defense much more multiple. I think that as you articulated in the last uh, you know, segment there about Carl Scott, that, you know, who's doing a great job in Seattle secondary, I think that Carl Scott is going to have a fun little toy to play with here in Julian Love as well. So, again, I just think this is a big-time playmaker for the uh, – big-time player for the Seahawks. And if, Ju- if Jamal Adams is on the field, I think that Julian Love is going to be that much more able to allow Seattle to be so multiple in the secondary to create some of those big plays to make this defense be able to match its offense and hopefully push Seattle deeper into the playoffs. Yeah, this guy is not just a top 20 most important player for the Seahawks because he replaces Jamal Adams if he's not ready to play at the beginning of the season. I mean, he is going to play a ton of snaps regardless of whether Jamal Adams is healthy or not. You look at the track record. This guy has been a good NFL player in the slot He's played outside cornerback for a little bit. He's played both safety positions. He can play single high. He can play too high. He can play in the box. He can blitz. This guy's had some decent success blitzing quarterbacks. I mean, he can do a little bit of everything. And when you've got a jack of all trades like that, that that I think is borderline elite at some parts of his game. I mean, he's a really good athlete. We're talking a guy that ran in the uh, six sevens, I believe, in his three cone time. Yep. At over 200 pounds. So Julian Love is a fantastic athlete that has the change of direction skills to be able to play in the slot. You can blitz him. You can play him back deep. He's got good ball skills. Why would you not want to get your hands in a player like this? And I, I agree with you. You get him for $12 million for two years. I think that is a steal when you look at the versatility and just the overall talent that he has. Seattle is going to be able to use him in more ways than they could use Ryan Neal. And that's not a slight to Ryan Neal. Neal had his own versatility, but not to the point that we will see with Julian Love, where you can really put him up against speedy slot receivers and he can defend them. That was not something you were going to do with Ryan Neal. So Julian Love really opens up your playbook, and he's a guy that can stuff the stat sheet in a number of different ways. And, oh, by the way, he's only 26, so he is still an ascending player. That's how John Schneider has changed free agency. He is going after these younger players that still have a lot of room to grow. Now, let's talk about one of those incoming rookies that we haven't yet seen on the field. Jackson Smith and Jigba coming to town. One of the Seahawks' big problems last year, Rob, 
they were near the bottom of the NFL in third down conversion rate. And there were a number of factors behind that. The offensive line was inconsistent protecting Geno Smith. But I think one of the big missing pieces was that player in the middle of the field that could win those contested catches, that knew how to get open to find the soft spots that the quarterback, Geno Smith, could lean on. Jackson Smith in Jigba, I think that is the most immediate impact that you see from him. And he's capable of doing other things, but that intermediate, that 10-yard game, the 5-10-yard to 10 yard game, where he is able to move the chains, make those tough catches, and create after the catch with his acceleration. That is something this offense has been missing that he can immediately bring to the table and then open things up for everybody else. Yeah, I, I, again, 100% agree with you. I mean, we all know that Jackson Smith and Jigba, you know, JSN is an abbreviation for his name. I think JSN should stand for just score now. Because the Seahawks struggled in the red zone. They struggled on third down, as you mentioned. And, and I really think that that's where Jackson Smith and Jig was going to be able to come in and make an immediate impact on the Seahawks. I, I don't know that that rookie of the year candidates uh, can trumpet their success on third down, but I think that Jackson Smith and Jigba and his representatives and the Seahawks should be preparing a campaign to get this guy a possible rookie of the year kind of consideration. Yep. If he does become the dominant factor on third down that I think that he can be. And I'm super excited about his talent. I was down on him. I want to make sure I'm clear about that. I was down on him early in the draft process because it terrified me that he missed this past season. And still for the Seahawks to invest a first round pick, I think it is a bit of a roll of the but my goodness, when he is on the field, he's the best player on the field. And so that's the thing is that it is very exciting what this guy could be. If everything goes the way that you hope, um, the quality of his route running, the way he snatches the football out of the air, and the fact that you already have in place a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback and two elite wide receivers, he really should get the same single coverage that JSN was able to absolutely destroy at Ohio State. It should be a quick and, and relatively painless transition for this rookie, and he should be able to hit the ground running. If that's the case, again, I think that there is an awful lot of excitement brewing in Seattle. We've talked a lot about Smith and Jigba and the impact he's going to have on Geno Smith, but there's also that ripple effect on some of your other secondary targets, and that includes the tight end position. And, and I've mentioned this a few times. I could see targets and receptions being down for all three of Seattle's tight ends this year just because there's only one football to go around. At the same time, though, a player we haven't talked about much during this offseason who might actually have a chance to really be a beneficiary of Jackson Smith and Jigba that is not named DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett is Noah Fant because, yes, Kobe Parkinson's got the size, but Noah Fant is a legit 4-5, 40-yard dash time tight end. This is a guy that truly has seam-stretching capabilities that the Seahawks didn't get to use much last year. But he might be a player that when you have that slot target in Jackson Smith and Jigba that's going to draw attention, it's going to take pressure off your outside receivers, but it's also going to open things up for Noah Fant, who can become a real matchup problem for opposing defenses because he's got decent size, but he's an outstanding athlete and he's got soft hands, didn't have any drops last year. So maybe we're discounting what Noah Fant can do in this offense with Smith and Jigba coming to town because it does make it, hey, he's target number four, you could only allocate your resources to so many top receivers before somebody's going to get open. Maybe Fant is the one that benefits, and we actually see an uptick in his yards per reception and his yak yardage. 
I think that there's definitely that possibility. Uh, as you said, you mentioned the four or five speed. I mean, this is the fastest of Seattle's tight ends, and he's also very, very large. And this is a legitimate 6'5", 250-pound man out there who can run in the four or fives. There's not very many linebackers who can run with him. There are certainly not very many defensive backs who would be able to handle tackling a guy of Noah Fant's size. I was super excited about the addition of Noah Fant when Seattle made the big trade, of course, of Russell Wilson. I really thought that Noah Fant was going to come to Seattle and take the world by storm. And I was disappointed, frankly, that that he was not more productive a year ago. Now, part of it, as we talked about, is the you know, Will Disley and Kobe Parkinson are going to catch some balls as well. The one thing I'd like to see better from Noah Fant, he is a terrific athlete, as you mentioned. Again, the straight line speed, the size. I didn't see great footwork from Noah Fant. I, there were times when I thought that uh, that he would pivot wrong or that he would – how, how should I explain this? Uh, he, he, he try, he'd make the reception. he catch the ball, but that he wouldn't necessarily be able to drag both feet to stay in bounds. He wouldn't have a great awareness of where the down marker was to get that extra yard when it looked like he might be able to do that. I, I still see a somewhat unpolished athlete that could become a better football player. I'd love to combine Noah Fant and Will Disley into the same player um, just because of the, the, the instincts of with, which, with which Will Disley plays the game and the athletic ability that Noah Fant has. I think this is a big year for Noah Fant. I think if he wants to stay in Seattle, then he is going to have to make some more impact plays. Um, and if he wants to get the big contract that I think his size and athletic ability suggests that he could, then again, he's going to have to make some big plays this season. Otherwise, I think that, uh, that a lot of the NFL is going to you know a fan is the third option of Seattle's tight ends, and that's not how you're going to get paid. Yeah, if you're the third option at tight end, especially with all the other weapons they have, it's going to be difficult to be able to have enough production there where you're going to draw a ton of interest in free agency, and maybe that makes him cheaper for the Seahawks to bring back. But this is a huge season for him. Fifth-year option that John Schneider picked up after the trade. He was part of the Russell Wilson deal, so this is a crucial year for him. As far as players that I think truly are important to Seattle taking that next step, I think you have to look no further than the rookie tackles, including right tackle Abraham Lucas, because we saw how well that these two guys played last year, Rob, for rookies. That you know, Expectations have to be tempered when you're talking about first-year players, especially when you have two tackles starting together. It only has happened three times since the 1970 merger, and the Seahawks being one of those last year. Abraham Lucas had his rookie bumps. He gave up nine sacks last season. So it's not like he was out there just lighting the world on fire. There were some rushers that gave him some major problems. At the same time, though, sacks are not the only thing that matters when you're looking at production. You, you want to look at pressures. You want to look at pass protection efficiency. And Abe Lucas was actually better in both those categories than what top 10 pick Charles Cross was. And he had better pass blocking and run blocking grades from Pro Football Focus. Take those for what they're worth with a grain of salt. But Lucas, I felt like, was the more consistent player in both aspects compared to Charles Cross. And for this Seahawks team to be able to truly take that next step where they can become a contender in the NFC, you need that offensive line as a whole 
to elevate his game. And I, I think the tackles, you know, center is certainly an important position, but the tackles are the most important spots in the field. Can you get Abraham Lucas to elevate his game and truly become one of the best run blocking tackles? And can he take a leap in pass protection, limit some of those sacks that he gave up with more experience going against some really tough competition in the NFC West? I think there's a lot riding on these tackles taking that second year leap, especially Lucas on the right side, given it how well he played last year as a third round pick as a rookie. Yeah, I think, um, as you said, uh, the offensive tackles are absolutely critical to Seattle's success. I don't think that Geno Smith has the season that he had a year ago if, if he doesn't have pretty solid play from those two rookie offensive tackles. Now, as you said, again, they, they were not superstars. You know, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not voting for Charles Cross or Abraham Lucas at this point as all pros, but to, to start every game, to take their lumps and come back fighting the way that they did. Uh, you know, Abraham Lucas in particular, who, who struggled a little bit with injuries and really showed his toughness in, in fighting through those, those injuries to start all 17 games, I, I think was phenomenal. And I think it's one of the biggest reasons why the Seahawks should be excited about moving forward. That said, I, I don't see with Abraham Lucas that that all pro type of potential. I think he's going to be a really, really solid player for a long time. I think this could be a 10-year starter in the NFL um, and absolutely prove that where Seattle selected him, he, he was a steal at that point. He should have been at first or early second round pick, in my opinion, and we talked about that for the last couple of years now. Um, you know, At the same time, I just want to see him kind of continue to smooth out his game. I don't think that he is a player that is going to take some huge jump. I mean, this is a four-year starter at Washington State, went to the Senior Bowl, played against top competition. I think you're going to see steady growth. That's what I'm hoping for for Abraham Lucas. Some of the other players, like, say, a, a Phil Haynes at right guard, presumably the starter right next to him, who didn't start quite as much, didn't play as much football in his high school career and all that kind of stuff, those are the players I think you can see that, that, that huge leap. For Abraham Lucas, again, I just want to see that kind of steady ascent. If he does so, then I do think that you're talking about, again, a long, long-time starter in the NFL who might be able to sneak in a Pro Bowl nod or two. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you listen to your podcast. Coming up tomorrow, we'll continue our all underrated team with tight ends and edge rushers. And we'll be looking at our 90-man countdown numbers 16 through 13 as we draw closer to the top 10. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening in and enjoy the rest of your Monday. Go Hawks.